talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Doesn't it feel good to be vaccinated? Here's Scott Thompson! What brought that on? Hey! If you're 50 plus, do I fit into that category? Am I 50 plus? Just, uh, oh, barely. Uh, yes, uh, come December 13th, uh, booster coming your way if you're 50 plus. Uh, that's the breaking news this afternoon. We'll be talking about that. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine is on the board. Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks in the newsroom. And tomorrow we are broadcasting live from Gore Park for the CHML lighting of the CHML Christmas tree of hope campaign. Man, it's great to get back down to doing that stuff. Man, I'm on. I'm on the radio, Mark. So uh, anyway, uh, it'll be great to be out and, and do that. So what we're going to do, uh, stuff that we normally do on Friday, we're going to push forward because our whole uh, show is dedicated that uh, to that tomorrow. From 3 until 7 o'clock tomorrow night, we'll be uh, there at Gore Park broadcasting live. So we're going to do the Ted Wheel of Hits. Uh, bumping it up, and this is also an all-request Thursday. I'm throwing that on Will now. Uh, so there what? you go. And then, and then tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow we are live from Gore Park, and it's solid uh, wall-to-wall uh, Christmas stuff. So, uh, and you will get to meet some of the great. The, the absolutely great charities, children's charities that benefit when you make a donation to the CHML Christmas, uh, Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. So full meal deal, full throttle starting uh, tomorrow and uh, as we light the tree and officially kick off the Christmas season. Although I think I think Diana Weeks kicked the Christmas season off on this show anyway uh, on Monday when we started playing, uh, I think it was Andy Williams' uh, Christmas song, just to get us in the mood. All right, what am I doing here? COVID-19, we've been talking about it. It's our world for the last, uh, I don't know, 89 weeks or so, uh, can it spread in animals? We all know it originated there. It's a zoonosis. Uh, 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 <laughs> we'll get that cleared, clarified in a minute. It's a zoonosis virus. So, uh, meaning it originated in animals. Uh, that's how, uh, at this point, we figure it got out of the wet food market in Wuhan. Uh, but then, how is it getting back into uh, the animal kingdom, especially in North America, as it has appeared in deer? And how much of a problem is that is it now that this is, and there has been viral spread among wildlife? Dr. J. Scott Weiss is with us, infectious disease veterinarian, professor with the Ontario Veterinary College and director, Center for Public Health and Zoonosis, University of Guelph, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, how does a deer, or how do deer, get COVID-19? Well, that's one of the questions we have right now. We really don't know. Um, They're getting it from people. We know this is a human-driven pandemic and that we're infecting animals periodically, but if the animal aspect is a reflection of what's going on in people. How it actually makes that jump into deer, we don't really know, but it's got to be some pretty close contact. And Some deer do get pretty close to people. Some deer get fairly domesticated and will come up to people, people that might be feeding them. So that might be one approach, but we really don't know how it's made that jump. And are we just to assume that the same way with humans, it, it's, it happens through the respiratory system? Yeah, most likely. We know this virus, the way it behaves in multiple species, and it's fairly similar. It's mainly from the respiratory virus. You can shed some of the virus in feces, but direct contact with respiratory secretions, getting close in the face of a person or an animal, that's what we're worried about. So uh, initially, we we understand that this comes from animals and jumps to humans, but in this case, it's humans jumping back to animals. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's spellback. So they started off an animal, moved into people, and became a human pandemic. And because we have a lot of contact with a lot of animals, uh, we've started to infect various animal species. Some are susceptible, some aren't. But the more that we look at this virus, the more that we realize there's a pretty reasonable number of animal species that it can infect. 
What about now if someone consumes a deer? What happens then that has been infected? Well, venison shouldn't be a problem. What we're worried about is respiratory secretions and maybe intestinal content. And that's not stuff that we're having, you know, that we're ingesting. And we cook meat. So even if there was virus on meat, cooking it and just normal food handling practices are going to be fine. The real risk when handling an animal is going to be the respiratory tract. So people that have handled the deer after they've hunted it, people that have cleaned the deer that might have contact with the mouth, with the respiratory tract, the meat really should be low risk because the virus isn't normally going to be on there. Uh, there are measures we can take to reduce contamination and hand washing and things like that. And ultimately, just the general safe food handling practices. So people shouldn't be fearing venison. They should just be aware of what we normally say for when you're handling chicken or anything else. Is this dangerous to the animal? Is it dangerous to the species? Well, it really depends on the species. So deer, it's probably not going to be a major health problem. Some species can get infected and have no problems whatsoever. Some will get infected and can get seriously ill. And there are a lot in between. And deer are going to, probably going to be more on that unaffected or very mildly affected. So I don't think there's going to be a big issue with deer health. So how concerned are you about this, that you are now discovering this in, for example, deer? Well, it's hard to say how concerned we are. I think it's something we want to pay attention to. And there are two main things that we're mostly worried about, but, but wanting to pay attention to it. One is, can we be infecting deer? And then they keep passing it around so we create this reservoir so that they can keep sending it back into us. So if we start controlling it in people, but it's out there in wildlife, is that another source of infection? And another concern, and maybe the bigger concern, is can animals be sources of variants? So variants are just normal mutations of the virus. But when there's a lot of transmission, they're more likely to happen. And when they jump into an animal, it might be more likely to happen too, because the virus is maybe changing a bit for its new host. So what we don't want to have happen is this virus get into deer and then it keeps circulating around in the deer population that then can infect us or worse, make a new variant that can then infect us and might cause more problems. And we don't know if either one of those is occurring. All we know is we can find the virus in some deer, but this is what we need to figure out. Is it going in there and it burns through a deer population and it disappears or is it going in there and going to keep being transmitted? And that's when we're going to have concerns. What about other animals, doctor? For example, domestic pets, cats and dogs? Well, we've known that for a while, that dogs and cats are susceptible. And with the work that we do where we go into households with people with COVID, we can find about two-thirds of cats have evidence that they got infected around the same time as a person and usually didn't get sick, often get a little bit sick, but not too bad. Dogs are a little bit less, maybe 25 to 40 percent. Um, dogs rarely get sick. So dogs can get infected with the virus fairly commonly because we have really close contact with them, but it doesn't tend to do anything to them, and they probably can't transmit it. Cats might pose a transmission risk because a cat can infect another cat, so plausibly could infect a person. So we, we do routinely infect the species, some of the species that we have close contact with. So are, what about other animals that may be more susceptible? Well, this is where we're just getting more information over time. So you've probably heard about the zoo cats, the big cats, mm-hmm. just like our domestic cats. They're quite susceptible. And they're maybe even more susceptible because we get more reports of them being seriously ill or dying. Uh, cattle and pigs seem to be quite resistant to the virus, which is good. They can be infected experimentally. They really don't get much of an infection. They're not going to get sick, and they're not going to transmit the virus. And then you've got a whole range of other species that we kind of just learn about opportunistically because someone finds it in that species or with some experimental studies. And we know that some species of mice are susceptible, skunks are susceptible, raccoons don't seem to be, which is really good because have a lot of raccoons in close contact with people. But as time goes on, we find out more and more about different species. And I think what we're realizing is this is a virus that, you know, has a pretty wide host range. It's not just a human virus now. Predominantly a human virus, but it doesn't mind going back into animals. Uh, can you shed any more light, doctor, on how this may have started in uh, you know the wet food market in Wuhan, what have you? Is there any more there to report? No, we really don't know, and it's a pretty solid assumption this came from a bat because it looks like some coronaviruses that are present in bats, and bats are a good reservoir. How it made that jump when it made that jump, where it made that jump. We don't know whether things really originated in that Wuhan market 
or that was just a place where there was a lot of transmission that finally got identified. And often these are things that kind of linger in the background for a little bit. They gradually build up, and then we realize that when there's a big event, it builds up. So we're pretty safe assumption that this originated in an animal and made that jump to people, when, where, and how. That's a tougher thing to sort out, and we may never get a perfect answer on that. Dr. J. Scott Weiss with us, infectious disease veterinarian, professor with the Ontario Veterina- uh, Veterinary College and University of Guelph, director of the uh, Public Health and Zoonosis Centre. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Great. Thanks for having me. It is 437. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Oh, man. I'm Scott Thompson. <laughs> Will Erskine is on the board, and it's a Thursday edition of the Roundtable. Not having one tomorrow, because we'll all be down at Gore Park for the lighting of the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and kicking off the campaign and such. So, again, reminding you to hit the website, 900chml.com, and uh, and tomorrow we're going to feature a lot of the charities that you uh, donate to by donating to the CHML Children's Fund uh, and where your money goes. So join us tomorrow, sorry, 3 until 7 o'clock, tomorrow down at Gore Park for the lighting of the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. All right, uh, the roundtable is here. Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks, and Will Erskine, and uh, feel free to jump in. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Hey, kids, glad that you're all here. Let's start with the uh, poll question of the day. I think this is a fascinating one, and apparently there's a group of kids uh, that are on a campaign to have the voting age lowered from 18 to 16. What do you think about lowering the voting age to 16? I mean, after all, that's when kids can start to get a license, although that's become graduated lately. Uh, what are your thoughts? Voting age lowered. Uh, Ted, want to start with you. What do you think? Nope, no way. Um, I, I would suggest for the most part, kids at the age of 16 don't know enough yet about what's going on politically. I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying most of them don't appear to be able to, you know, think what's going on politically like I say you know there's taxes there's health care there's all this stuff that that they're not concerned with yet so you know I'm probably a a good point I'm probably a bad guy here but but I say no Uh, and you know you bring up a valid point is it something that they're interested or should be interested in I guess should be interested in in at this age I guess it's, it's, it's a tough question Diana what are your thoughts I think yes because I think the kids that are you know, politically inclined that are paying attention to what's going on, they're going to go to the polls and the ones that aren't, aren't going to go. That's that's what I think. Um, and I think that a lot of issues that they uh, might be, you know, might be top of mind for them might not be issues that are top of mind for our generation. And that might actually be a good thing, uh, regardless of, like Ted said, I agree with the taxes and stuff, but perhaps there's other social um, things that they might be able to have an input on that maybe someone older wouldn't. Well, thoughts? Yeah, I've been thinking about this one all day, uh, almost since GMH uh, tweeted it out this morning, get us started on this. Um, Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's a tough one. I would, I think I ultimately fall on, let's move it back a little bit. And my main point is, Ted, you're saying... What, to 17? What do you mean, a little bit? Either you're there or you're not. See, see, that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, what if it was graduated? You said graduated like license. What if 16, 17, you start to be able to vote municipal, provincial? Hey, that's interesting. yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, I was thinking, well... Yeah, I remember being that age, thinking I knew a heck of a lot about the world, being pretty full of myself. And then as you get older, you find out, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. But then I'm thinking, well, how many people who are my age now already think they have everything figured out? How many people Ted's age think they have everything figured out and they're allowed to vote? So maybe oh. it's not that much yes, of I, a difference. I agree with <laughs> Will. 16-year-olds, we're all kind of uh, yeah. heads stuck somewhere. Flinging so. us under the bus. <laughs> not oh. even really, though. Oh, I feel like there's a lot of 16-year-olds that might be <laughs> a little bit more, more informed. informed. It's kind of, I think it's spread out 
pretty evenly across the age groups. So, yeah, maybe if we're going to treat me... you as adults around 16 in some respects, we can start to at least introduce some of the voting. How about, yeah, yeah. How about like in school first? Sorry. Well, that's... What about in school? Do they learn, uh, back in my day, it was called civics. Do they have yeah. any concept at all? They're finally starting to teach about finances in the high yeah. school. Which finally. And kids were I woefully fully unaware. I, I remember yes. being younger but that's only and one aspect it. of the oh. vote, right? That's only one aspect. Let me ask you this. Uh, we're having a hard oh, well. enough time even getting 18-year-olds to vote. Yep. The voting is quite low in in the demographic, whether it's 18 to 24 or 16 to 24. So uh, the one advantage I can see is it will get kids interested earlier, but that can also be a disadvantage in the sense that now all of a sudden you see ads that are geared towards this age group, and all of a sudden it's going to start, uh, you know, you can say, well, we could learn about it in school, but yeah, you can also influence what's going on in school. So, uh, again, I- I'm not sure that... Um, I'm not sure that the issues that and and the things that kids are listening to or or or, or contemplating in life necessarily are reflective of voting, and that's simply because we have a hard enough time getting 18-year-olds out to vote. Do you think it'll be easier to get 16? No, it won't be. No. I wonder, though, uh, as you say, it's not really. I mean, it's not geared to them right now. There's already things that aren't. Uh, necessarily, you're saying, oh, well, you're learning in school, etc. What if opening it up did encourage more of a change to get more young people not influenced, not, you know, oh, let's gear to them, just put it, you know, put it on a cereal box or TikTok or whatever you communicate to the youths with nowadays, but... If you did start encouraging that more civic mindedness, because I do, there's a lot of young people, especially in Gen Z, who are taking it up themselves and trying to learn it. And I remember being, again, that age as a teenager in the mid 2000s, there was a lot of independent, okay, we need to educate ourselves on this. We want to understand this better because there's a lot of stuff happening. It was, you know, and we didn't necessarily come to always the best conclusions, but. I think there is a motivation in a significant amount of young people that if we start to meet them culturally, we could get this. We It could end up being beneficial. It could be exactly what you're saying, Scott. It could get the 18-year-olds raised up by the time they're voting. It would be interesting, and again, because we're just assuming that 16-year-olds are interested in voting and 18-year-olds aren't. So, I mean, again, if you do bring it into, as Ted was pointing out, into school, you could get more of a civics lesson around it. But then again, that's a real fine line between... Um, you know, here, let's give a civic, civic lesson and let's everybody get involved in politics to when all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the influence of the day, your teacher's teaching you politics. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to me, I don't know, it, it's a very slippery slope. And, you know, again, it comes back to at what age do kids become adults? We've talked about driving. Well, they can drive at 16, but let's be honest, the, the, the driving system has gone the opposite. It's gone to a graduated system. So it's now it's even harder to get a license at 16. And by the time you're finished uh most kids are you know 17 or 18 before they're getting their their, their full-fledged license and can and you know drive just as, as vote so it'll be fascinating to see if this has any legs ted you've seen this before uh do you think it, it'll have legs what uh, as far as the drive is, is getting no getting people to vote at 16 or you know what another thing social media is is i'm sure uh mobilizing this movement what concerns me kind of is we had the story, but uh, the it, it said that the voting age challenge, those taking part in the challenge range in age from 12 to 18. Hmm. That's a pretty wide gap. 16 yeah. is one thing, but 12, with all due respect, uh-uh. All right, I'm going to give the last word here to the kids. Diana or Willis, speak up. I'm going to go with my encouragement. No matter what, start getting involved in municipal politics. That's a good place to learn a lot more of a broad good scope idea. than you're expecting at the age of 16. It's really beneficial. Or maybe, uh, maybe they could do something, and I don't know if this would be at all possible, but perhaps they could do something in the, school, in the high schools where there's a course that you can take, and it can be an elective, and if you're interested in learning more about you know uh, civics and politics and all that stuff, you take the course, and then somehow if you you take that course and 
you know, get a decent grade in that course, then you can vote. I don't know. That may be awful. That may be an Mm. awful idea, but like it gives you the option of doing that. And maybe it could be like a, almost like a flex pass for voting for like 16 (laughs) to 18, you know? That's it. Disguise it like something at Wonderland and we'll get them to vote. Yeah. All right. Great topic. Thanks to you all. Uh, Will Erskine, Diana Weeks, Ted Michaels around the big round table. We'll be back again on Monday with all of this. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday, B. Silf, uh, Bill C-4, which banned the practice of conversion therapy, passed in the House of Commons. Uh, the big surprise was it was unanimous and it was brought forward by a conservative MP. Uh, of course, uh, this all ended in, in, in lots of euphoria, lots of celebration. It's a sort of cooperation, uh, voters certainly like to see and we rarely see. Uh, to talk more of the politics behind all of this, let's bring in, uh, John the Abtelier, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. John the thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you very much, Scott. So how surprised were you, John Viev, so that to see the, the two sides hugging each other in the, in the House of Commons yesterday? Probably more than you, because that was really <laughs> a surprise. And I thought it was um, kind of a wrench that the Liberals throw to the uh, Conservative in the sense that, okay, we're going to talk about conversion therapy, and it's, it's going to be missing, messy, and we're gonna, you're going to show how divise, divisive you are on that, on that file. And this is completely the contrary that, that happened. So uh, I think that, yes, I, I said to you I was surprised, but probably the Liberals are even more surprised than I am. And probably that's changed a lot about their strategy because uh, now what we have seen for the first time in years is a united conservative party on a very sensitive issue. And so that's not good news for the Liberals because uh, if Erin O'Toole is able to keep that unity, uh, it means that we will discuss other matters, more serious matters like uh, the rec- uh, co- recovery from the pandemic, uh, the economy, the budget, and uh, other important topics that matters really for Canadians. So the Liberals were ready for a fight, and that didn't happen. But how did this happen? How did the Conservatives unite over this? I think it shows the leadership of Erin O'Toole. And what we have sensed for many weeks now was that Erin O'Toole was telling, give me some time and you will see I will manage to come up with something, unite the the party. And that's the main issue, the main problem that any conservative leaders have is uh, the lack of time. So look at Andrew Scheer. He was thrown out very rapidly from the uh, from the party and the same thing was was almost supposed to happen with Irene O'Toole because he lost the election uh, but I think that finally he was able to talk with his people and probably I, I was not there was not in the room but probably some MP, MPs themselves started to realize that if they were not more pragmatic and, and sensitive on 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 some issues and, and try to make some compromise, uh, the conservative, conservative Party would go nowhere. Um, so that's probably the two reasons why this has occurred. Um, the, 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 the realization that uh, this divisiveness within the right is only good for the liberal the liberals and so uh, they have to address that that issue so it really it shows i think it shows ultimately the 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 the, the strength of the leadership of irino tool that finally shows up and and materializes in, in something uh michelle rempel her name keeps coming out as someone who is instrumental in this anything we know there behind the scenes um, but not that I am particularly aware of, but it is nonetheless very significant because she is a strong voice from Western Canada. So this is important because often we had the sense that the conservatives are divided, uh, Eastern or Central Canada versus Western Canada. And so having a strong voice, uh, and from somebody that could be very, that is very vocal and was also very critical, she speak out her mind. And if she doesn't like what the leader is doing, she will say it. And and so uh, the fact that she was instrumental in that, that's what we think, uh, really shows that some others within the party are working to bring this unity that is lacking. Also, something maybe not to forget is that a few weeks ago, um, the Irene O'Toole has presented his shadow uh, cabinet and many MPs were appointed on that shadow committee and so uh, they were giving responsibility and this also give them, give them 
some uh, visibility. So that's not to uh, we should not forget about that. And Michelle Rampol is one of the people that benefited from that. Other like others, I w- I'm thinking also of uh, Pierre Poiliev, who's now the official critic of finance. And so uh, having put influential people uh, with a strong uh, position, that also probably helped Arnaud Tool to bring everybody around himself. Only got a few seconds left here. Uh, is this a turning point for Aaron O'Toole? I think so. Yes, it's not impossible. We'll see the other files, how they unfold. But, uh, yes, I think now uh, we will stop questioning his leadership. He has proven that he is able to gather all these people around himself. And so uh, that's certainly good news for the Conservatives. So, of course, time will tell, but uh, that's for sure a good starting point. John Vieb Tellier with us, Professor School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. John Vieb, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you very much. Uh, we certainly know what uh, COVID has done with housing markets and well, just about everything. Um, but certainly housing, it has changed the way uh, we think and, and, and has to pivot as well. Uh, the Real Estate Association of Hamilton Burlington has released their report for November. Uh, October, really strong. November, not quite as much, uh, but still very hot market. Let's bring in Donna Backer, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington and with us now. Donna, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am Scott. And how about you? So far, so good. Uh, keeping our fingers crossed. So October, obviously a strong month. November, not as much. Is this more a seasonal thing? I mean, the people uh, still putting houses up and doing transactions as we get towards the holiday? Yeah, definitely. The market uh, tends to uh, become, you know, the, the numbers tend to slide off a bit in uh, November uh, as compared to October. October is always a big month. But uh, but this October, we came in 3% lower, I believe, than October. But uh, the, the numbers for uh, this November were so much higher than the average November of the previous 10 years. Mm. So that's what you have to really look at. So how do you explain how do you explain the action, the activity now, Donna? Well, I don't know if we if we can really explain it aside for the fact that uh, the demand for uh, real estate, the supply the supply is just uh, not meeting up with the demand. Yeah. So the uh, the listings and sales uh, seem to be, you know, just a little bit above uh, above these these uh, ten year averages. Uh, but our inventory numbers are, I mean, they're they're in the basement. So our housing reserves are are extremely low. Uh, that's interesting, too, because, you know, and, and I know there's no information on this yet, but anecdotally we're hearing, uh, and really the way it was, was people were coming from the largest cities or, or like Toronto and, and then moving to the Hammer because they were getting a bigger, a better bang for their buck and they get out of the city, big city, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Hamiltonians downsize as well. They like to go out and, and, and obviously if their housing prices have gone up, there's lots of people here that are cashing out. However, are you seeing that? Would you not see more supply if that was the case? Well, you've got the the boomers, right? You know, and yeah. it's a large population, uh, aging, and when you when you get such a stranglehold on supply, okay, like you know, and, and that demand is there, there's no place for boomers to go to, yeah. you know, to to free up their houses, and the demand, like I said, for the Hamilton market because of the price point, uh, the demand is is huge, and then you have the the movement inside the city, so. You know, uh, uh, just a year ago, only one in ten transactions of the single detached homes in Hamilton uh, sold for over a million. Now, one out of every three single detached homes that sold Mm. in Hamilton in November had a purchase price of over a million. So you can see how this is just, this is like snowballing into, um, you know. Why, Why has building become a bad word? Well, building, I, I think a lot of the reason why building has become a bad word is, is the lack of understanding. So you have the two uh, conflicting sides, uh, you know, the people thinking intensification is the way to go until intensification is happening in their neighborhood, then they flip over to be a not-in-my-backyarder. Yeah. So, you know, we've got to come to grips with this and understand that uh, developers, for example, are not necessarily the builders. You know, the developers do the the early part of that whole right. building process, and that takes that takes a decade, sometimes two decades. So it, this is 
Um, you know, are we experiencing something from decisions made 10 years ago? Perhaps. You know? And another way to look at this, Donna, post-pandemic, are buying habits different now? Are people looking for something different? Yes. Than they, they were pre-pandemic, in other words. So fact, uh, I guess the point that I'm making, less up and down like, uh, like cordwood, and they want their space. Well, Scott, and I think that what, you, what you're saying there is very correct is they are looking for something different. And the reason is, is now they can work from home. You know, they're looking at something now that they never thought they could look at before. You know, more affordable accommodations in a city like Hamilton that still has a, an urban feel to it, uh, you know, has the character of our, our architecture. So there's a lot of reasons why we're seeing this this migration uh, coming out of, of cities, the more expensive cities like the, the GTA Right. So it's amazing how we know how much we're growing and how we really uh, uh, encourage growth and encourage immigration, although that's obviously slipped a bit during a pandemic like like everything has. But we encourage all that. But we don't even think about where these people are going to live. Well, I think that is something that all of us, uh, Canadians, Hamiltonians, everyone, people in Ontario, uh, we really have to understand that this is an issue all the way from the a low-income family to a person who is extremely wealthy and gainfully employed. Housing is the roof over your head, and we have a right to a roof over our head here in Canada, and we're not doing it. So, uh, you know, there's it's, it's nice to be altruistic, and, uh, you know, um, I, I don't think we could be co- more kind to our fellow uh, Hamiltonians or people living in Ontario than to address housing. Um, and regardless what that housing is, we need to address it head, head on. And we, and we can't wait 10 years to do it. Donna Bacher with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. Their number's out for November, and Hamilton continues to be a real strong market. Donna, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And thank you very much, Scott, for having us. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Monday, December 13th, individuals aged 50 and over will be eligible to schedule their booster dose appointment. In addition, effectively, immediately, individuals receiving dialysis are eligible for a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. All right. That is Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's top doc, talking about the Ontario government expanding its third dose eligibility. Ontario's age 50 and older uh, will uh, be able to book their appointments as of uh, Monday, December 13th at 8 a.m. as uh, we move into full-fledged booster mode. Let's bring in Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalatlana School of Public Health. And with us now, doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thank you. Before we get to the boosters, Doctor, I just want your uh, the latest information about the new variant. Uh, obviously, everybody is extremely concerned about this. We remember when we were extremely concerned about the Delta variant uh, as well. Is there anything more we can you can tell us or we know at this point about uh, vaccine effectiveness and, and transmissibility and all that? It's going to take a couple more weeks to get an indication of vaccine evasion. There probably is some. There was some with Delta. You may remember the Pfizer vaccine used to be 95% effective. Now with Delta, it's about 88. It may drop a few more points. That is significant. There's no question. But um, the one thing we know is that there is definitely a higher level of transmissibility, and we don't know enough yet even to be able to estimate that. But it's overtaking Delta. It's overtaking other variants. And that tells us that it's got some advantage. Either it's evading vaccination, it's evading the immune system, or it is inherently better at reproducing, which was Delta's thing, Um, or maybe it's a combination of both. We're not seeing severe disease so far. It's still a bit early to tell. I don't think we should be panicking. I think essentially COVID is handing us a better mousetrap. And what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to up our game. I think we're going to need to improve the masks that we wear. We're going to need to wear them a little bit longer. We might need a fourth shot. If the if the vaccine evasion is significant, um, so these are these are the things I'm thinking about. But it's not fundamentally a different struggle. It's the same thing. And I think you know the bad news here is not a catastrophe. The bad news is this might drag on longer than we wanted it to. 
We remember uh, that there's been various variants throughout this. Obviously, Delta, the prominent one at this point. Is it just a matter of time then before uh, uh, this latest variant overtakes the place of Delta? Yeah, that would seem to be the case. Again, everything we really have to say is tentative. But where it's spread, where we have seen significant spread, it has spread fast faster than we expected. It's displaced other variants, especially Delta, faster than we would have expected. So that does seem to be the course. Now, we have some travel restrictions. We've reinstated testing upon arrival. I think those are good uh, measures. Testing for sure. The, the, the limiting of flights, you know, I think is a very short-term measure. If we know where there's a lot of Omicron, then yeah, we shouldn't have flights from there. But all we can do is buy time. Omicron, if it's as transmissible as it looks, it will find its way here. And it's probably all over the United States. They haven't found it much, but it probably mm. is, and uh, we can we can expect the same. So the more time we can buy, the more we can organize ourselves, get ourselves uh, better prepared. As I say, perhaps better masks. And I, you know, the number one thing on my wish list to fight Omicron as well as Delta is for us to implement airborne transmission in policy. Stop pretending that a piece of plexiglass is going to stop what's the equivalent of cigarette smoke, and and really start taking air quality more seriously. Wow, that's an interesting analogy, comparing it to cigarette smoke. Um, Boosters, obviously, the big news of the day today, Ontario announcing that uh, expanding its eligibility to 50-plus as of December uh, 15th. Obviously, this is done, or it appears this is done, as we're hearing more and more about uh, Omicron. So uh, your thoughts on is this a good move, a good measure moving forward? It's a smart move, and I was happy to hear it. We probably should have done that anyway. There was really no reason to wait with that, and, and we don't have a vaccine shortage. So I think there's all kinds of good reasons to, to move that up. But Omicron does make it more urgent, and that's a perfect example of what we're trying to accomplish with banning certain flights is let's buy some time so we can get third doses into people. And it may seem counterintuitive why more vaccination if it turns out that Omicron is vaccine evading. Well, it really gets down to uh, incremental differences. So the less effective the vaccine is, the more people we need vaccinated in order to keep spread under control. So more vaccination, people who haven't been vaccinated, I think are going to be at a really elevated risk of catching this. And people who have had two shots will be much better protected with a third. And I remember hearing this uh, uh, this question asked in the United States about should people wait for a booster if a, if a booster will have something new in it? Is that worth waiting for? Are we that close to finding an, uh, you know, a new version of the vaccine for this? Well, a new version of the vaccine can be developed quite quite rapidly. I think that what I've been what I've heard from the drug companies is that takes about a hundred days. And they'll need mm-hmm. to do some testing, not not starting from scratch, but just some testing. And so that's months. That's months away. No, I would not suggest to anyone holding off on a third shot. What you may want to imagine is that there could be a fourth shot in your future. And we don't even right. know if that's, if that's worth doing. We don't know. Um, if it turns out that Omicron is really vaccine evading, yes, we can have that fourth shot. We can have that ready in a few months. We can have it so that by next summer, Omicron's in the rearview mirror. I'm, I'm sure we can do that. But for now, if the, that's, if you're eligible for that third shot, you should get that third shot. I'm going to sign up for mine the very day I'm eligible. So should uh, we be lowering this to 18 plus or the fact that we were initially uh, vaccinated with the first and second dose in stages, this is the appropriate way to do it? I think we, we're finding that that six-month mark between second and third doses is, is a good place to be. <coughs> Pardon me. And, and so I think we, we should move in that order. So keep the staged approach as we did with the first and second. Yes. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that does make sense. Now, if Omicron spreads even faster, if we learn more, we may need to change our minds. But from everything we know now, that seems to be about right. Dr. Colin Furness with us, epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalalana School of Public Health. As always, doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. We've talked uh, a lot at late. And, you know, this has kind of bothered me because everybody, uh, especially as we're chatting about boosters and the third dose, uh, there's been a lot of politicians, a lot of woke people that are saying, you know what? We shouldn't be getting boosters. We should be sending this to Africa. This is where, uh, you know, the uh, the Omicron variant is coming from. And that's what we should be doing. And and then we heard uh, the, uh, the federal NDP yesterday say that we should be 
basically suspending the vaccine patents that the companies have with these drugs so other countries can produce their own, creating an illusion that there's a shortage of vaccine. Uh, and, and I brought this up, and, and, and we've had a few people talk about this. Uh, Africa Officials in Africa have said, don't send us any more vaccine. We have enough vaccine stockpiled. That's not the problem. The problem is we can't get it distributed and into arms, and there's a mass amount of hesitancy. But supply is not an issue. So at what point do we start concentrating on how we really help these countries as opposed to just saying political stuff that makes us all feel better but really doesn't do anything? Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott, and I, I'm glad we're talking about this because I think it's an extremely important top subject that has topic that has far-reaching implications that go far beyond the current issue and far beyond vaccines. Uh, before we get to the actual patent issue, um, obviously uh, Africa has said we don't need any more. That's right. not the problem. We need to get it into arms. Uh, we need distribution. We need to uh, to educate and and work with those that are hesitant. So, what do we have to do to actually help, as opposed to a lot of pol- uh, political people saying, you know, we should be doing this, we should be? How do we actually help them on the ground? Is there a way? Well, we. I'll answer it this way, and I'm not in. I don't. Uh, I'm not in the area of foreign aid. I've certainly traveled extensively, far more than the average person, to developing countries. And I don't mean staying in five-star hotels with the with the rich folks. I mean I'm uh, staying in local homes, and teaching in uh, places uh, like Romania and um, and in Iran and in Russia and places like this. But often, often, always. In all my travels to developing countries, and I've never been to the worst of the worst. I haven't been to Somalia or Ethiopia, but I've been to some pretty poor countries. And most, almost all Canadians just really don't have an idea what it's like in these countries. And I mean by that, we just say, oh, well, you know, they've got high-rise towers in Mexico, or they've got high-rise towers in these poor countries just like we do. And they're, they're just like us, except they just got a little bit less money. That's not the case. They're lacking everything. Their infrastructure is woefully... Uh, inadequate it's collapsing often the water infrastructure often is contaminated uh because they don't have good ex- water filtration systems are very expensive medical doctors are always in short supply uh the 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 uh, bureaucrats are are very, there's high levels of corruption in developing countries and that's been well documented by the united nations and the world bank and so everything we take for granted you know a, a reliable public service a reliable public health care system uh, you know, uh, honest officials, uh, uh, an efficient functioning supply chain management system, all of that is, doesn't, doesn't apply. And, and you have great suspicion, too, because there's much lower levels of education on average. I'm not talking the privileged elites, but it, and this data is available from uh, the, the UN. Anybody can challenge me. They can go look up the data for the average levels of education. And so the problem they're facing in these countries is, as the African leaders are telling us, but we're not processing the information, there's a great deal of vaccine hesitancy because of suspicion. We see it here, too. We see it in Canada. We see it in Europe. Only 54% of Europe, Europe, 54% of Europe is vaccinated right now today. (laughs) And and that's a high-income country. And so the problem is not supply. People, it's not supply. Pfizer can crank this stuff up by the billions. The issue is we need uh, medical, uh, whether they're doctors or, or medical you know, nurses, trained nurses, nurses' assistants, to go in. And this is sort of classic uh, aid, uh, foreign aid, where you go in and work right down at the local level of the village. Yeah. And, they, you know, Bill Gates was great with this with the mosquito nets. Uh, trying to get people to adopt mosquito nets to uh, to to put back push back malaria, and and it's it's about education, and it's about working with people one on one on the ground. It's not about setting up. I mean, I laugh when I heard the, I mean, laugh in a bad sense of the word when he said we just have to give them give them the IP rights and they can yeah. set up these multi billion dollar factories. Are you dreaming, Mr. Singh? Well, that was, I think, I found fascinating. If you're having a distribution issue, then how do you have the facilities to produce? I went and did some research because I knew you and I were going to be talking, and I'm talking good research. There's an excellent article in The Economist magazine, very prestigious, only about three months ago, explaining it wasn't about Africa, by the way. It wasn't about the developing world. What they were talking about was that manufacturing 
of vaccines, they said, is one of the single most complex, difficult manufacturing processes in the world. Far more complex than making cars. And I think making automobiles today is really complicated. Well, vaccines is on a whole different level. And they were saying in the article, and then I looked up an article in the famous journal, it's a peer-reviewed journal called Vaccine, the Journal of Vaccine. And they were talking about all the things you need. First off, you need tons of scientists, because this is not making socks or underwear or T-shirts in Bangladesh. You need very, very high levels of quality that many developed countries cannot achieve. You need very precise measures. You need people, a lot of people with PhDs in biochemistry. There's a shortage of those PhDs where in the first world, in the developing world, where we pay them out $250,000 a year. <laughs> where you think, and the article even said, if you were to try to set up a manufacturing facility for vaccines in a developing country, you'd have to bring in all the technology and all of the workers so you defeated the whole point of going there because they're absent in these countries. It's not a conspiracy that we don't have vaccine factories in a whole bunch of countries. It's only in a handful of countries because it's A, horrendously expensive in the billions to set them up. B, you need remarkably highly educated, highly skilled people. I could never work in one of those factories. You need a PhD in biochemistry. And the and the processes are very, very demanding. And that's why there's lots of developed countries, European countries that don't have it. And so the idea you just poof, take away the IP, and poof, you know, a few weeks later, you've got a vaccine factory in, in, in Somalia is just so preposterously naive. It is so, you know, he said we've got to be evidence-based. I saw the speech by Mr. Singh. That's the antithesis of what he's arguing is the opposite of being evidence-based. He's simply oblivious to all of these problems and barriers that exist. If we want to, I, I sort of saw the point, you know, well, let's give the vaccines, because we can give them very easily through our foreign aid program, but th- that's not even, as you pointed out very correctly, it's not even a supply problem. It's incredible resistance, suspicion mm-hmm. of foreign things, foreign technologies, foreign drugs, and th- these are people who are lead very traditional lives in villages, and they don't want some foreigner coming in and sticking a needle in their arm with they don't know what. And, and so it's much more of an education problem and a public health and, and training problem down at the ground on a one-on-one level in villages across these uh, uh, countries that we're referring to. It, you know, it's no different than feeding the world. Vaccinating the world is just as difficult as feeding the world. Ian, Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am as well as can be. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, we're Good. sitting around the big round table with the kids, uh, Diana and Ted and Will, earlier on today. Normally, we plow through about three or four things. I uh, didn't get past one today. I bet uh, I know. The poll, I bet the I poll know. Question, the poll question of the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I guess there's a group of kids that are looking to uh, vote, which is great, considering for the most part, kids have never really been interested. We have a hard, time, a hard enough time getting 18-year-olds to vote, let alone 16. So I love the initiative, but it comes down to the poll question of the day. Should uh, we lower the voting age for uh, Canadians from 18 to 16? What are your thoughts, Scott? Not a bloody chance. <laughs> no, no, no. Wait a sec. We're, we're, Ted, is that you? Is that you, Ted? What, hello, Ted? Uh, for those who are listening, by the way, stick around after your show, because we're going to be talking about this up first uh, today, and we're going to be t- opening the phone lines on this one. No, there's, in my mind, no, there is absolutely zero chance. I'll tell you why. When you're 16, some people are driving a car, but otherwise you have absolutely no real responsibilities in your life. You don't pay taxes. You're not paying for food. You're not paying for anything you have you are basically still breastfeeding off your mother essentially and you are now going to have a vote in how those people who are slogging away and trying to earn a living and pay their bills and everything else you're going to have a say in how the decisions are made that they are going to have to do no way no you have to you have to have some skin in the game in my mind before you get to have a vote. Now, I know not everyone over 18 has skin in the game, but at least it's more likely that you're out of high school and you've got a, 
university loan or a college loan or a job, something that says that you are now participating as a functioning, contributing, earning, whatever member of society. No, when you're six, when, when you were 16, Scott, what did you, what would you have voted for? You would have had every party come uh, out and say, you know what, free this, free yeah. that. Hey, that's great. Yeah. And, free kegs for everybody, yeah, you know. Yeah, come yeah. on. it's No, no. And, and it's not about saying 16-year-olds are stupid. No. But it is about saying 16-year-olds do not have the same responsibilities or obligations that other people, as you get a little bit older and have bills to pay and life to pay for, that other people do. It, no, it makes no sense. And, you know, a lot of people use the 16 and driving thing. But when you think about it, you when you got your license at 16 or when I got mine, it was way easier than it is now. And by the time you finish the graduated system, you're you're pretty much 18 anyway. So uh, it's not like it isn't harder to get a, a license now at 16. What I'm concerned about, the only thing I can see positive here is that you're, if you bring it in if you bring it down younger you're putting it into the schools which again is a disadvantage too because then all of a sudden the teacher becomes uh, an element of this but at least you're you're educating people on what it is and maybe you'll start the habit sooner but again oh, if they're not starting yeah. it at 18 why would they start it at 16 and i'm concerned about ads that are targeted towards this group and again i think there's pros and cons of bringing it into the school scott you just okay i have no problem so why don't we, we are, you know, in our education system now, we're talking about all these things we want to bring in. We've, we've accelerated and changed the sex ed program. We're now bringing in a, a money course so that kids learn Fiscal, how to yeah. get money. So uh, no problem. Let's have every student have to every year take a civics course. And yeah. when there is a year of election, you must have within your school an election. And then you discuss who you voted for and what the issues Great are. Idea. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have students engaged in elections or in politics. A hundred percent you should. But this is where we don't, Scott, in, in other facets of school and other parts of society, we don't throw 16-year-olds out there and say, go ahead and have your whatever in this. We teach you. That's mm-hmm. what school is for, to expose you to these things so you learn about them. So when you get to the age that you are mature enough, theoretically, and responsible enough, you then have some idea what you're doing. I would love for this to be a facet of the school of the education program. Don't 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 make it a don't make it a thing where they have a real vote. That's that's stupid. But put it in and this place will... so they learn about it. hundred percent. Scott Riley will continue with this coming up uh, after the news at six o'clock. Hey, Anybody want to plug real numbers? quick? I, yeah, I'm go ahead. Get the phone number so people can get ready. To yeah, dial. start calling now. Sure. I want to hear from you off the top today about whether 16-year-olds should vote. And if you disagree with me, as is always the case on Scott's show, it's fine to disagree with the host. Just have your reason, and it's totally okay. We'd love to hear from you. And it better be good. Uh, thank you, Scott. Have a great night. Sounds like you got a jam-packed show. Should be fun. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for ours. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will, Ted, and Diana for participating. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word, oddly enough, on this very same issue. Hi, it's Bruce from Hamilton. Just an idea. Did you know that in Canada... At 16, you can get married with your parents' permission. If you come from a politically motivated family, why not get the permission to vote at 16 and have the government accept that? Ah.